You're listening to a Podglomerate original. This episode of Missing Pages is brought to you by Book of the Month, a curated subscription service that makes it easy to discover new books you'll love. Every month, members get to choose from a selection of titles that are picked by an editorial team, real people who read hundreds of books. I'm going to use their app to make my monthly selection. I open the app. I see this month's selections for March. I'm going to choose one I really am excited about reading, which is Anita DeMonte Laughs Last by Zoshnal Gonzalez. And so all I do is make it my book of the month by clicking the blue button. And there we go. It's in my checkout and I can choose other add-ons to go along with it or just receive the one book. To get started, visit bookofthemonth.com to pick a book and use code CHIRP to receive it for $9.99. That's code C-H-I-R-P. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Welcome back. In our last episode, we unpacked Caroline Calloway's humble beginnings. I grew up reading books like Harry Potter and Artemis Fowl. From an adored millennial Instagram influencer. It is the most fairy tale ice cream cone that has ever been eaten. To Twitter's main character, and not in a good way. At the time, she has 500,000 Instagram followers. Her high-profile book deal gone wrong appeared to be just the tip of the iceberg. By 2017, she is saying that she is not going to be able to actually write this book and that she is going to have to pay back some of her advance. By early 2020, Miss Calloway, still a conventionally attractive 20-something living in New York, had a name synonymous with the pitfalls of internet celebrity. Caroline Calloway is a one-woman fire festival. But as you may recall, 2020 also coincided with events way out of any influencer's control. Chinese health authorities are still working to identify the virus behind a pneumonia outbreak in the central city of Wuhan. Tonight, U.S. airports on high alert, screening passengers for symptoms of a deadly new virus. With a global pandemic forcing us all indoors and now extra online. Stay at home. Stay home. Stay safe. Quite simply, stay at home. For Caroline, who was already gifted at leading an online life divorced from reality, 2020 pulled her in a new direction. OnlyFans began five years ago, but it really took off last year during COVID lockdowns, when the number of people posting skyrocketed from 120,000 to more than a million worldwide. Oh boy. It's quickly becoming the most lucrative thing I've ever done in my entire life. Miss Calloway certainly keeps things interesting. Stick around. In this episode of Missing Pages, Heavy is the Head That Wears the Flower Crown, part two of the Caroline Calloway story, we look into our crystal ball emojis. 
what might the future hold for our emerging author? This episode is brought to you by Bumble. So you want to find someone you're compatible with, specifically someone who's ready for a serious connection, totally open to having kids in the future, is a tall rock climbing Libra, and loves rom-coms with vegan pizzas on Tuesdays just as much as you do. Bumble knows that you know exactly what's right for you. So whatever it is you're looking for, Bumble's features can help you find it. Date now on Bumble. Chapter One, The Long Goodbye. New York, I love you, but you're bringing me down. Leaving New York to just get away from it all and write, ah, it's an act of privilege older than time. Writers from Joan Didion to Patti Smith to The Onion have all waxed poetic about saying goodbye to the Big Apple. So in my time there, which were during these farewell parties, they kind of always went the same, in which you arrive and there is a dinner of some sorts, or maybe an activity that you do, a puzzle that you put together, and she staggers when guests are going to arrive. So there might be a more intimate part of the evening, and then a bunch of other people join later when it becomes a party. That's Brock Collier reflecting on Caroline's high-profile departure from her West Village apartment. But during that nine, ten days of partying at her apartment, it was a lot of monologue. It was a lot of Caroline talking about the time that she'd spent in New York, why she was leaving, what she was leaving to go do, and quite literally going around the circle and asking people to talk about what they thought of her, essentially going around and saying, how much are you going to miss me? And what do you like about me? Brock writes a nightlife column for New York Magazine, cheekily titled, Are You Coming? Where they offer a spicy dip into what happens in the city after dark. Some of their takes have included... Three Cosmos and a Poodle Dance with Candace just Bushel. like that. She tried to hire Everyone is drinking Budweiser. I'm I want you to know that your Miami girl her DJ so ex-boyfriend are friends like As soon as we arise, she sniffed. I've never seen this much. Who let the hogs out? Only March Madness could make grown men squeal like this. And if you've been online in the past few months, you probably spotted Brock's piece on Vox's real estate vertical, Curbed. The whimsical write-up chronicled an evening at one of Caroline's farewell parties as the social media personality packed up and set off to Florida, where she plans to write her memoir with fewer distractions. Here's Brock telling us more about those sordid affairs. I think everyone was there to just see the shit show. Everyone wanted to be able to tell the story of going to Caroline Calloway's apartment of 10 years. I don't know, you walk in and it's, it's like being inside of a terrarium. It's very much fairy a fairy princess's apartment. It's covered in plants. It's covered in flowers and actual terrariums. And it's also covered in the potting soil and flower petals and all of the things that, you know, go into making all of those things. Um, but there's shit everywhere. I mean, you walk in and it's a studio apartment and in the kind of living area is an altar in the middle of the floor of candles and plants and 
animal skulls and matchboxes that have her name inscribed onto them and paper and pens and books and magazines. I mean, a ton of shit in the middle of the floor. And I, you know, people have this familiarity with her apartment of her painting the floors, you know, a while back. A week or two after this night, Brock describes, images of Caroline's trashed apartment went viral back in March 2022. Caroline has these beautiful, had, had these beautiful hardwood floors in her studio apartment. Guess what she did? She painted the walls white and, and then she, she painted the floors white. She didn't move her piles of stuff, her piles of clothes, all of it. She just painted around it. Yikes. This might be the first time I felt sorry for a New York City landlord. Let's rewind. What has Caroline been up to during these bleak pandemic years? As of the past two years, which we'll call Caroline Calloway's embracing her baddie era... Our flawed heroine has been monetizing her personal brand in, I guess, a more authentic way. It seemed like whatever she could capitalize on, she was going to capitalize on. With the creativity workshops flopping and Natalie Beach's article putting the final nail in the coffin in September 2019, Caroline's flower crowns wilted and she dropped off the internet for a hot, steaming second. This going dark stunt is very much inspired by T. Swift, who, before dropping the big Reputation album, also went dark on Instagram. I'll hand it to Caroline. She does know how to retrofit celebrity marketing tactics to her own advantage. Nobody's buying what she's selling, so she starts selling something else. So I needed a way to make money, and... OnlyFans, I just felt like no one thought I'd actually do it. And there's nothing that makes me want to do something more than being underestimated. And so I signed up for OnlyFans. Her OnlyFans account launches in early 2020. And by the springtime, she was claiming earnings of over $130,000. It's quickly becoming the most lucrative thing I've ever done in my entire life. Like, it's actually demoralizing, like, how much people are paying to see me naked. Ever the controversial character, Caroline says all the money she made from teasing paying customers on OnlyFans went toward paying back Flatiron Books its six-figure advance. As a reminder, this was spring 2020, a.k.a. the height of the pandemic. OnlyFans was a godsend for real sex workers who could no longer safely practice their craft in person. But it was also a platform quickly turning into a profitable celebrity playground. And over the past few months, we've seen more and more celebs creating OnlyFans pages. Some are using it for, well, you know, and others have found other uses for the site. Stars like Bella Thorne, Cardi B, and even Eric Andre were joining up and getting accused of stealing the spotlight from real sex workers. Eric Andre here, comedian, actor, whatever. A lot of you um, have been looking for like a more direct way to connect with me, so I figured why not start an OnlyFans? But yeah, I really like it. And I think it's so fucked up that people are like, oh, you shouldn't be on OnlyFans because you like 
you you should save the money to be made by the other sex workers. Um, that is the most fucked up communist bullshit I've ever heard in my entire life. Like name another profession where you'd be like, oh no, no, don't enter that profession because other people who aren't you need to succeed at that profession. So Caroline seemed to fall in with this oft-criticized cohort of OnlyFans celebs. And without the ability to gallivant around town as a New York City influencer, OnlyFans may have filled a void for Caroline. Then, in the summer of 2021, further capitalizing on her pseudo-ironic persona as a scammer, she launches her skincare product, Snake Oil. Apparently, influencer Caroline Calloway has released her own skincare line. It's called Snake Oil. With beauty brand launches and a lucrative OnlyFans account in the mix, there's one burning question that I still have. Does Caroline Calloway even want to write a book? Well, our New York mag nightlife insider Brock thinks so. Do you think from your interactions with her, which were really about scenes and nightlife, but do you think Caroline wants to be a writer? Yes. And her moving away from New York is to me her trying to choose writing over being it girl, party girl in downtown New York. When she was leaving, she kept saying, you know, my days as an it girl are over. And the thing was, is she was never much of an it girl as much as she was this bizarre attraction that you went to see or maybe ran into in New York. Huh. But was Caroline a downtown New York City it girl? In the lead up to her dramatic exit from the city, Brock gave us a window into what Caroline's social life looked like. I think in the last year, in the post-pandemic party season, Caroline was chasing an elusive downtown scene. So in the middle of the pandemic, the Times wrote this piece about Dimes Square and this new downtown kid newspaper, The Drunken Canal. And suddenly, Dimes Square and this Drunken Canal publication kind of became the white hot center of this creative downtown party world in New York. Here, Brock is referring to a New York Times article from March 2021 by Ben Smith. Ben, a 40-something-year-old journalist, or as my daughters might call him, an old, tried to name this very Gen Z scene bubbling up on Manhattan's Lower East Side. If you were of a certain age in New York, then that scene suddenly became the scene and the places that they hung out were the places that you wanted to be if you wanted to be a part of this. Part of the reason that this became a scene is that a lot of the participants were clearly having fun on social media when other people weren't doing that yet. And Caroline was actually quoted in this piece or referenced in this piece. Rock is referring again to that article in The Times, which named all the characters, including Caroline, as part of this new nexus of cool. 
she had been in this drunken canal newspaper. And it's funny <laughs> because she likes to say before this piece, she had never actually been to Dime Square. She had never been to this little corner of the Lower East Side that had become the place to be. So the places that Caroline Calloway was going in the last year were the places that this scene were hanging out. Hmm. So did Caroline's presence make this scene relevant? Or did she identify the trendiest people and places to associate with, then wiggle her way in? It seems like this wasn't the first time Caroline followed along with the curators of Cool. She'd been doing this for a while on social media. And why not? Being on trend is how social media influencers gain traction and remain relevant. The time right now at 622. We're talking about what's trending on Twitter this morning. and it's Plus this follow the pack mentality. Well, it's not an accident. It's a primal survival instinct older than time. Wolves live in packs. They hunt, play, and even howl together. A pack can consist of all different ages and can be anywhere from 3 to 40 individuals. But for humans, this pack mentality, or an earnest desire to fit in with the it crowd, well, isn't it more of a high school thing? Okay, you should just know that we don't do this a lot, so this is like a really huge deal. We want to invite you to have lunch with us every day for the rest of the week. Oh, it's okay. Coolness. So we'll see you tomorrow. On Wednesdays, we wear pink. From what Brock told us, it seemed like Caroline was chasing a sense of belonging with this younger it crowd. Wasn't she older than this group? Was she chasing a a kind of relevancy? Yes. I mean, Caroline, when I first met her, was 29. When I first followed, again, and the fact that she hosted this party at the Russian Samovar with the drunken canal. And, and, And that was the night I met her, and she was 29. And something that didn't make it into that piece, but one of the first things that struck me about her was she seems really young. No, she was hanging around these 20, 21-year-old internet and TikTok kids, and she seems like one of them. And that was really shocking to me. She just blended in so well with people who were a decade younger than her. But in her attempts to find a sense of belonging as an it girl, did Caroline only further cement herself as a kind of New York City spectacle? When she was leaving, she kept saying, you know, my days as an it girl are over. And the thing was, is she was never much of an it girl as much as she was this bizarre attraction that you went to see or maybe ran into in New York. Like the Statue of Liberty or the Naked Cowboy. Is Caroline Calloway another New York City attraction? I'm the Naked Cowboy. You gotta do what you gotta do. Uh-uh-uh. Don't be so quick to write her off. Stay with us. After the break, we're going to take Caroline Calloway seriously as a writer. Chapter two, starting over. You just sort of like overwhelm them with your enthusiasm. And at this point, they're just too polite to be like, this has been a huge misunderstanding. We never want to hang out with you. And now we're best friends. Her well-documented ability to charm and captivate all different kinds of people 
makes Caroline Calloway a lot like some of the other personalities we've covered this season. Here's Brock again, talking about what it's like to be in the influencer's presence. Something I've long said about Caroline is that from the first time I went to a party with her, she was an incredible subject in the nightlife context because everyone around her is really excited to be around her. And she's really excited to be around everyone else too. It's rare that I have a subject like that. Either they're bitching about how the night's going and how the party isn't quite good enough. Caroline doesn't do that. If you're around her, then there's this sense that she feels like you're important in some way in the New York scene. And so there is a lot of boosting you up. You know, she'd pull me to the side and say, your writing's so important, you're gonna do something great one day. And I watched her do that to other writers and artists in the apartment, even TikTokers and influencers, you're gonna be really big. But there's also something else to her brilliance that's intriguing. She's been able to read the tea leaves and capitalize on social media trends early. Our scammer expert from part one, Gabrielle Bluestone, mentioned this special skill. Caroline's content tended to hew carefully to what was popular at the moment. So if you compare what she's been posting recently to how she started, it it is truly night and day. Caroline even recognizes this superpower in herself. Here she is talking about it in that Eyewitness Beauty podcast interview from summer 2021. I truly did see the potential for influencer marketing before the concept existed. There's certainly a marketing business savvy that we can't quite ignore. I mean, we're still talking about her, aren't we? But what about Caroline, the writer? Caroline once lost her cat at KGB bar and she loves saying, I once lost my cat at KGB bar. And she would say that. And then she'd say, isn't that a great line? Like, I can't wait to write that line which said everything like her goal really is writing but even that line itself and the way that she saw that as like an important sceney kind of thing even though it really wasn't hmm while caroline dreamt up great lines for her manuscript it still seemed like she hadn't done any actual writing that could be published but were there other reasons why she may not have been able to sit down and write In the years since the Natalie Beach article came out, Caroline has spoken openly about her Adderall addiction. This is the roundabout story of how I started Snake Oil. It truly (laughs) began as like me just looking like fucking father time after I came out of my amphetamine addiction. Now, lots of people use ADHD medication every day without adverse side effects, myself included. But Caroline learned there are dangers to overdoing it with amphetamines like Adderall. The high was too enticing, and this spiraled into a very real addiction. According to Caroline herself, she stopped using the meds altogether as of 2017. Now, as of 2022, Caroline has left New York City to finally write that darn memoir. Here's Brock talking about Caroline's high-profile departure from NYC a literary trope that writers from Joan Didion to Patti Smith to The Onion have all waxed poetic about. 
But she very much thought of leaving New York as leaving this kind of it girl status behind. I do think she wants to be a writer because her references are not Nico. They're not, you know, one of Andy's girls. They're not Edie Sedgwick, you know? Her references are women writers through the ages, from the first women memoirist in the world, who I can't remember who that is, to the memoirs of Catherine the Great, to Zelda Fitzgerald, to Joan Didion, Jeanette Walls, Elizabeth Wurzel. Like, she wants to be in a grand tradition, Patricia Lockwood, of women who are memoirists writing about their lives. And more specifically, I think she wants to be in this tradition of hot mess addict women writing about their lives. Kat Marnell and Elizabeth Wurzel, especially. She sees herself in league with them. For each episode of this show, it's really easy to fall down a rabbit hole and get lost in the confusion of a subject's behavior. Here's where we had to pause and remember the point of this show. Books. We're a podcast about books and the business of book publishing. For Caroline Calloway, who, love her or hate her, is only 30 years old and could very well write the damn memoir, we wanted to imagine what that might look like. Here's where we needed to talk to someone who understands how to get shit done. Hi, I'm Zivi Owens. I am the founder of Zivi Owens Media, which includes my daily podcast, 365 Days a Year, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. And I am also the co-founder of a publishing house called Zivi Books and the founder of the Moms Don't Have Time to brand. That's Zivi. She's one of the hardest working people in book publishing. Along with releasing an interview episode of Zibby Media's flagship podcast every friggin' day, she's a literary agent and runs a book imprint, and she's an author herself. I am an author myself. I have a children's book called Princess Charming, with a second Princess Charming book on the way. And my memoir is Bookends, a memoir of love, loss, and literature, which is my life's work in a book. We wanted to talk to Zibby for a few reasons. First, she understands a thing or two about hustle and grind and structure, skills that may hold the key for helping Caroline Calloway get that book over the finish line. I work all the time and it never feels like work because, well, some of the emails, I guess, feel like work, but, you know, I, I work constantly and I'm, I'm very invested. I'm not just kicking back on the couch and saying, let me see where life takes me. But I think you can work your hardest and still not ultimately control the direction, whether good or bad, right? You can, we never know where things will ultimately take us. Losses come into play. Great things that you weren't expecting come into play. Knowing that you can work and work and work and still, even if you're whip smart and savvy like Zibby or Caroline, it's still unlikely in this industry to nail the landing with your first book. Here's Zibby's advice. I think that your first novel is not going to be the novel that ultimately sells. I cannot explain how many authors I've spoken to who all said their third novel is the one that sold. And they felt bad that the first two didn't, or they they knew they weren't that good and so they kept them in a drawer. But it is okay to have one or two practice novels and you have to actually write the whole novel. And that's okay. And it doesn't make you a bad writer. It's just, that's what you have to do. But we also wanted to hear Zibby talk about vulnerability and authenticity, 
which feel important to this latest stage of Caroline Calloway's journey as a creator. So I think we've now swung the pendulum over to let's talk about what life is really like, right? That's how we connect. That's what social media is should be for. Like, let's share what it's like so we know we're not going crazy off on our own. So I think it's I think it's a reaction to that over curated perfection that social media used to give us constantly. And we just don't really want that anymore. We want to hear it like it is. I think I do. What I love about Zibby, and to be frank, about Caroline, is that here are two women who look at the world and see space for something new or different, then, with varying degrees of success, make it happen. The difference here might be that Zibby has more life experience. And remember, context is everything. Zibby's Gen X generation versus the demands of the always-online social networking millennials, those are two different atmospheres. But is the pressure that all women face to show up and be perfect versions of themselves something new? My first article I published in Seventeen magazine was when I was 16 years old, but I wrote it when I was 14 about how it felt to gain a bunch of weight after my parents got divorced, and I was a freshman in a new school, and the effects I felt like that had on me. And even at that time, people were like, what, you're so brave. Why would you, how could you write this? And I'm like, I don't know. It just, this is what I do. This is how I write and think. And so I've always been able to share myself on the page and hope that it helps other people. Whether it's a Snapchat filter hinting that you'd be hotter with lip fillers or stick thin models suggesting an ideal body type, It seems like women have always been held to one impossible standard after another. People, especially girls, I think, have this natural innate instinct to compare themselves to other people. I actually did my whole senior thesis on social comparison theory. This is an innate thing that we do. We compare ourselves to other people. And my eight-year-old daughter, and this happened, I think, last year, was starting to notice that some of her little friends had different bodies and that some were taller, you know, and just noticing these and her saying things like, well, why am I short? And I'm like, I'm five two. You're never going to be that tall, you know, but there's nothing wrong with that. And I remember we were in a cab um, and I live in New York City and we were driving up Park Avenue. This is sounding like a very, you know, movie-like scene, but there were all these tulips, right, in the flower beds. And I was like, look at all those flowers. They don't all, they're not all the same height. They're not all the same width, like, but they're all like, in the same flower bed. Like, it's okay. You might not be the tallest flower, but who cares? You're not supposed to be. It's There's supposed to be a lot of differences, and that's okay. And those unrealistic standards that most women feel from an early age? Well, they might feel even more insurmountable for women of color, including those in the publishing industry. Here's the award-winning writer, Disha Filia, who you'll remember from the first part of this episode. There's so many no's before you get that yes. And it's very easy when you know that publishing is white, you know that there's bias in the industry. It's like, hmm, let me not make any waves. (laughs) Let me Mm -hmm. just go with the flow. And that can be to our peril. That could lead us to write something other than the story we want to tell. That could lead us to make the kind of compromises that we really don't want to make and that white authors aren't asked to make. 
And then the other challenge, you know, frankly, is is money. Um, that hashtag publishing paid me showed that, you know, um, black writers are paid less than white writers. Everything Disha is saying is true. In June 2020, the hashtag publishing paid me exposed some of these economic disparities between black and non-black authors. So the hashtag publishing paid me has been trending on Twitter over the last few weeks. Basically, authors of different races have been disclosing their advanced payments. The young adult author L.L. McKinney started the hashtag to generate a conversation around the pay gap in book advances. The hashtag came um, out of, like, my frustration, like you said. I was just like, y'all need a hashtag here. Start giving numbers. True to social media's ephemeral nature, the story blew up in the moment. Big publishers responded, vowing to bridge the pay gap. What's wild to me is for, for a while, publishing likes to tell this, this lie to itself that, you know, we're just following the market. You know, we're just, we're... we're, we're trying to make money. It's about money. It's about money. And I'm like, well, for years now, studies have shown that the highest reading demographic is Black women and girls. So if you were actually trying to trace the market, what you're offering would look very different. But it's worth continuing to name this inequity and to point it out over and over again. In terms of Caroline Calloway's public failure to deliver a manuscript, well, it's a prime example of these messed up double standards in publishing. The thing is, she'll, she'll land on her feet, she'll get a second chance. But we, as, as Black folks, like, we can't count on that. You know, we, we cannot count on, on that happening. We have to over-deliver, you know? We have to over-deliver. So first of all, yeah, don't try that at home. And it, you know, it, it, it tracks. It's definitely on brand that, you know, um, the ease that people talk about with, oh, well, so because of social media, it's so easy to, you know, to get whatever, get a endorse, uh, you know, get these endorsement deals and, and all of that. But it, you know, we know it's not equitable. I would say to young black women, don't try that because they will come after your ass. <laughs> they didn't come after Trying to live up to unrealistic standards, whether on social media or in everyday life, where the goalposts constantly seem to be moving. What is true is that so much of how you handle it all likely comes from your foundation or what you learned at home. Recognizing and appreciating the difference, wasn't that a lovely lesson Zibby shared with her daughter? It got me thinking about the kinds of examples Caroline may or may not have had growing up. In an interview on the podcast Daddy Issues from December 2020, Caroline describes her family dynamic in more detail. My dad, I mean, he was alive until last September, and I've been on the internet for the past seven years. Some would argue, you know, seeking public validation to very varying degrees of success. But like I, during those seven years, I mean, I've been doing it for eight years, but during the seven, which I did it, and during which he was alive, like, he didn't get it. Like, he didn't... The same thing that kept him from, like, answering questions in a normal amount of time kept him from seeing any value in, like, public adoration of me, which was also a blessing because he never really cared when people 
he was as oblivious to people disliking me as he was to people liking me. The conversation goes into detail about her father's sudden death by suicide, which social media found some awful way to attack, given its close proximity to the release of the 2019 Natalie Beach article in The Cut. I think it's very important to clarify that, like, he killed himself a week before Natalie's article came out. Like, I think a lot of people project their own parents' feelings of shame on about their success onto, like, my dad. And, and it's very easy for that story to get mixed up as, like, he killed himself, you know, because of the shaming of that article, which is so far from the truth. Um, like, he couldn't have cared less. He didn't understand that sort of public validation. What we can gather from this tragic loss and the knowledge of Caroline's family dynamics is this. Of course she was primed to crave external validation and attention. As we know in the business of books, oftentimes the cover doesn't match the contents. But Caroline worked with what she had, which fortunately and unfortunately carried mass appeal. She was young, stylish, effervescent, the manic pixie dream girl letting you inside her secret world through the screen. But the manic pixie dream girl is just that, a dream. Caroline could look the part of the muse, but she wanted to be taken seriously as an intellectual and an artist. And it's on this note where we have to pause to remember that Caroline, our flawed scammer goddess, is 30 years old. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not condoning Caroline for her long history of questionable business practices as a symptom of youth. That's unfair to the 22-year-old CEOs out there. Being young does not equal being shifty and underhanded and an unreliable narrator. What I am saying, though, is life is short, but life is long. And it's far too soon for book publishing to dismiss Caroline Calloway. In Brock's article about Caroline's departure from New York, they write that our would-be author hopes that there will be a plaque outside of her former West Village apartment one day that reads, This is where Caroline Calloway lived. The jury's still out on whether the word writer will be etched into Caroline's biography. But now that we've gotten to know her a little bit better, I understand why she craves this symbol of credibility so much. A privileged white woman's reign on Instagram is temporary, like a story that disappears after 24 hours. But an author's shiny brass plaque? That's forever. Everyone reaches that point in their life as a creative where they have something to say, and they have to say it. And I hope that's what Caroline is up to down in Florida like all the greats who have fled the city that have come before her. Can't get enough of stories written by and for flawed heroines or notoriously controversial women? Well, here are a few titles that you simply must read. Then book talk and Instagram about ASAP. Before there were influencers, there was Eve Babbitts. Try her slow days, fast company. Not only did Lena Dunham get a book deal, she actually published a book. 
Not that kind of girl is great. What would Caroline have done in the age before Instagram, Twitter, and OnlyFans? How to Murder Your Life by Kat Marnell offers some clues. Missing Pages is a podglomerate original and is written and produced by a small army. Showrunner, Kayla Lippman. Producer, researcher, and writer, Jordan Aaron. Producer, Matt Keeley. Production, mixing, and mastering by Chris Boniello. Fact-checking by Douglas Weissman. Legal review by Alexia Bedat and Louise Caron at Claris Law. Marketing by Joni Deutsch, Morgan Swift, and Madison Richards. Social media by Sylvia Butel. Art by Tom Grillo. Production and hosting by me, Beth Ann Patrick. Executive produced by Jeff Umbro and The Podglomerate. Special thanks to Dan Christo, the Eyewitness Beauty Podcast, the Daddy Issues Podcast, Constance Grady, Brock Collier, Disha Filia, Zibby Owens, Gabrielle Bluestone, Lupita Aquino, Leslie Bennett's, Lena Dunham, and the especially chatty waitstaff at Minetta Tavern. You can learn more about Missing Pages at thepodglomerate.com, on Twitter at Miss Pages Pod, and on Instagram at Missing Pages Pod, or you can email us at missingpages at thepodglomerate.com. If you liked what you heard today, please let your friends and family know and suggest an episode for them to listen to. I'm Beth Ann Patrick, and we'll be back next week with another episode.